This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Back after nearly a one-month hiatus for episode number 41 for November 2013, your hosts are Ken Morfield, that's me, and Todd Truffin. That's me. Our topic for this episode is The Devil's Backbone. The 2001 film from writer-director Guillermo del Toro. This is not a spoiler-free discussion, so if you have not yet seen The Devil's Backbone and don't want to know what happens in it, go watch the film first and come back. Or you can go watch Pacific Rim. Yes. Or you can check out one of the other fine podcasts on Film Geek Radio. Speaking of the other podcasts on Film Geek Radio, I've been asked to give a little plug if you listen to this podcast. On our website, there is now a voicemail app on the right of the screen. We seek new and interesting ways of making it easier and easier for you to tell us what idiots we are. So all you have to do now, if you don't like Ken's take on gravity, which I hear a lot of you don't, or Todd's take on the devil's backbone, just click on the button and send us a voicemail, or you can even call 336-793-2509. Ken, I was trying to write down that number. What was it again? 336-793-2509. All right, so we are looking at The Devil's Backbone. Todd, since I did the intro, what can you tell us about the plot of this film? Well, first I will say that part of what was driving our choice of The Devil's Backbone um, at this point is that Criterion Collection just put out a fantastic Blu-ray of the film with all kinds of lovely special features and commentary and whatnot which Todd bought, and that's why it's here. So it is kind of a new thing, even though the film was 2001. Criterion, this is wonderful. If any of you want to know what to get me for Christmas. Yes. So The Devil's Backbone is an or- a haunted orphanage story set during the Spanish Civil War. Our protagonist is a young man named Carlos who is dropped off at the orphanage. Uh, He doesn't know he's an orphan. The death of his parents has been kept from him by his caretakers and they drop him off at the orphanage. And as he makes his way into the community of the orphanage and the boys that are there, uh, pretty quickly it, it appears that there is a ghost the one who sighs. And we learned very quickly that young Carlos has been assigned the same bed to sleep in as a former orphan um, who had gone missing. And 
was causing some consternation. And as our story progresses, um, and we learn more and more about this orphanage and the secrets therein, um, there's hidden gold, there are hidden affairs with the adults, um, but there's rebels with the cause, there's rebels with the cause, and rebels who are just selfish, and we, we do learn eventually the fate of our missing orphan who had been killed by one of the caretakers that kind of leads us into a beginning conflict as all good haunted ghost type stories are the you know the climax comes at the revelation of truth what happens to the ghost why is the ghost a ghost and resolution occurs Todd we've talked a little bit in our 40-some episodes today about horror. I think most notably in the podcast about The Exorcist and the intersections of horror as a genre and spirituality in film, Christians watching film. I've confessed there and elsewhere that I'm not a big horror fan. I liked this film. Some of my thinking from getting ready to podcast has been why, given the fact that I'm not a particular aficionado of the genre of horror, I, I liked it. Uh, what were your overall impressions? I one or or where are you on the spectrum of liking, appreciating horror as a genre, and where were you about this particular film? Well, I think, well, I mean, generally speaking, I think it's fair to say that I enjoy horror genre films much more than you do. But part of it, I, I was thinking about this film, and, and I think you know one of the difficulties we get into in talking about the genre horror is that that's a big umbrella. And there's a, a far, there's a big, a big range of films that kind of fall under that umbrella that are really rather different from each other. Yes. Um, I mean, there's your slasher type pictures with you know, like your Friday the 13th, where we have a Halloween. monster who's just going around chopping up people and killing people, and it's a lot of very gruesome violence, um, in some senses, just for the sake of the violence. And then, you you know, you've got films like this that are really creepy. There is, I'm not going to say there's no violence in it, but it has a totally different feel to it. Uh, it it's a different kind of story than your slasher-type picture. And can you tease that out different how? Well, I, I think in some sense the, the focus is not just on this malevolent evil that goes around slashing and, and killing and dismembering people. I think you know this film has the elements of a what I would say more is a more of a gothic story rather than a horror story. Are there creepy bits? Are there scary bits in this film? Yes. But in some sense, the scare is not the point. I was thinking about what, in, and in many cases, what Devil's Backbone, I think, is even different from other ghost stories. I think your, your run-of-the-mill ghost story is really there just, you know, for the shock, for the, the scare. And this film had a creepy, creepy atmosphere, but there really weren't any jolting scares that I remember. In it. it, it seemed to be much more understated 
in those. There weren't a lot of those conventions of the Hollywood horror slasher film of uh, what we might call the jump cut, right. you know, people coming out of us out of the shadow, uh, people approaching us from negative space so that he, oh my God, he's behind you. And, um, and, he, and he didn't have those, those stings of the music cues right. that jolt us as well. Uh, there's, there, there, I remember one scene where the boy is hiding from someone and, or something, and he looks through the keyhole and you see the eye looking back at him. Uh, but for the most part, the fear and anxiety comes from what is happening and what it means and what we learn about it than the way that it is filmed, which right. I think is a hallmark of the what I mean by the jump cuts and the music yeah. and uh, where it doesn't matter if it's a shark or a chainsaw killer. The, the, the shock comes from the suddenness of someone lurching at you out of the dark and not in the contemplation of who is lurching at me out of the dark and why did he get there? And I would say, you know, one of the differences here is the kind of movies we're talking about tend to be roller coaster rides. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, you know, it, it's something that's going to get our adrenaline pumping, but we know we're safe. It, it, there is that sort of pleasure of being scared, but knowing that there's no real danger, which is I think one of, you know, people that like horror pictures or like roller coasters or like going to haunted houses around Halloween time, you know, those, that's what that's all about. Mm -hmm. This film, while having certainly many of the genre markers of a gothic story, it's, it's a story. You know, it, it, it's much more like, you know, a, a Dickens Christmas Carol where, yes, there's all these tropes and figures of ghosts and you know, playing with some of those parts of the genre story. But there's a story here and it's about something. Yeah. You've mentioned the word gothic twice. And yes. I'll just throw in that from my literary studies, the gothic in literature really came to be at the end of the 18th century and the 1700s, which was the age of reason and rationality. And then historically in the early Gothic and the true Gothic, because it was a materialist age, something was creepy or scary that had the appearance of the supernatural, the ghost, the hearing of voices, something like the right. monster. But would usually be revealed in the end to have some sort of materialist explanation. Well, the ghost was a sleepwalker in the moonlight. The disembodied voice was a ventriloquist in, in the bushes. Right. And I always teach that the transition between Gothic and horror is that in, in, in Gothic, the horror is about the contemplation of or the imagination of whatever it is that scares you. But in the horror movie, the modern day horror, the horror is real. The, the monster is real. I think we get some genre tweaking or conventions in The Devil's Backbone because the ghost, on one hand, it's a ghost story, and that's more traditionally gothic, uh, but the ghost is real. You know, the ghost right. is not just a psychological manifestation of someone's um, fears. It's a real ghost who Carlos, the young protagonist, such as he is, actually 
interacts with, uh, which is sort of the reason I, I give that background or that distinction is because I was thinking about why I liked this film maybe more than some others and or why I think it's worth looking at in a, a thin place perspective. And I think that this film recaptures some spiritual dimensions of the ghost story or the gothic by really inviting us to think about what's horrific and why. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a story of the supernatural, but the ghost isn't horrific just because it's supernatural. Uh, the person who's horrific is the human being. Right. Um, now, I think uh, I had written down in our pre-show notes political versus spiritual allegories that uh, oftentimes then these films that are set in very political settings, they become political allegories of uh, political statement, you know, political statements, uh, rather than spiritual statements. But I think that there is an element of contemplation of spiritual themes or religious themes, or at the very least moral themes in the film that transcend it being more just about here's an injection of adrenaline by making something jump out of the bushes at you or by making you think about something that's scary, whether that scariness is a ghost or a fascist. Yeah, I guess I would add to that um, my wife, Sherry, as is something of an expert in the Gothic, that's what her PhD study was on and whatnot. In her studies, has kind of teased out some different characteristics of what make Gothic Gothic, and one of them is this idea of the curse, um, that there is something in the past that, and, and quite often the protagonist has no knowledge of. It's part of the part of what makes it frightening and horrific is that there are things in the past that you don't know, you have no knowledge of, that are affecting your life. Mm-hmm. And that then part of the gothic story is the uncovering of these unknown things. And, and as we all know, I mean, what, whatever kind of unknown it is, it can be rather frightening. Um, and, and that's always got me thinking about, you know, a lot of those Old Testament curses that we hear of. You commit this sin, it will be visited upon your house for seven generations. And, you know, I've always thought of, well, what about the sixth generation or the fifth? You know, these people have no clue what's happening. And yet, you know, the idea of the curse, you know, part of what makes it a curse, is you don't always know. And in this film, there's all kinds of history that, like, you know, our, our protagonists, the, the little group of orphans, are a bunch of people who don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, our main protagonist doesn't even know that his parents are dead. And, you know, that's, you know, a major thing. Um, they don't really know why the war is happening. I mean, they know that the war is going on. They talk. About Everyone it. else knows why this ghost is there, but he doesn't. But he doesn't know. Or at least knows who this ghost is. Right. He doesn't know. He's inherited the situation where. And he has no clue. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's a very real, you know, it's one of those, you know, one of these genre things that happens, whether it's a Western or whether it's an horror movie, is, you know, taking some of these more abstract realities of our life and giving them a physical form or something, something that we can see. And I think that's what this story does so well. 
Right. Well, I mean, I think we're exactly, I think we're exactly tracking on really focusing in on this notion of the curse as being seminal in a Gothic story or in this horror story. Uh, because I think that really speaks to me about that intersection between a spiritual or religious worldview and a materialist worldview. The materialist will still, can still speak of curses as a metaphor, mm-hmm. uh, as just only the curse that we have inherited has been this history of fascism or the strong preying on the weak or the political actions of men that have created a situation that we are now suffering under. Whereas the spiritual minded can speak of you know, specific punishment or specific acts that are haunting us are, are, um, that we're laboring under. I mean, in, in many ways, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, where talks about the first act of rebellion and eating the fruit of the forbidden tree and then uh, Adam and Eve are cursed and all human races is cursed because of this action that, that we've inherited or the structure that we've inherited. And so in many ways, the, almost like I think the, the hardcore historical atheist or agnostic and the spiritual religious you know, historical Christian are actually in many ways agreeing on this one point that we're both experiencing the world as oftentimes we are victims of circumstances or conditions that we don't know how they got that way. We didn't necessarily make them that way, but we're definitely suffering the consequences of. And the film, there's one particular scene in the film that I think really embodies that. The the doctor, the the older gentleman who's one of the people running the orphanage, is talking to Carlos, and in his lab he has these jars with the preserved remains of deformed babies, um, and he's talking. I mean, he points this one specific specimen that has an exposed spinal column that is called the devil's backbone. That's where we get our, our title. And he says, you know, he's making this distinction for Carlos. You know, there's what he calls the superstitious people who would uh, attribute this to some curse or to some spiritual, there's a re- spiritual reason why the child was born to form. And what he says, the more the materialist things, is, or what science tells us, is that it's it's poverty and disease are the cause of these things. And yet, you know, well, what causes poverty? Um, where does the disease come from? Um, he doesn't really go down that path. But I think, as you're saying, well, everyone's agreeing these are bad things. We don't know where they came from. We don't know, you know how to stop them, really. And yet, they are affecting us gravely. Yeah. One of the things we don't often talk a lot in terms of formal criticism on here, uh, but one of the things that I really appreciated about the film, that scene makes exactly that point. But Del Toro often reinforces that point visually just by the way that he frames or shoots the film Mm -hmm. rather than just always through dialogue. And I'm thinking... 
uh, the film begins and ends with the monologue that says, what is a ghost, what is a curse, or whatnot. And in the intro monologue or montage, we get this montage of scenes that are going to come. So you get that temporal displacement. But the very end of it is, you know, a vision of the devil's backbone in the spine of one of these children in preservatives that we haven't seen yet. And that dissolves. There's, there's a camera or a shot that dissolves rather seamlessly into the desert landscape. And, and I even wrote down on my notes, the curse dissolves into landscape. You know, uh, it becomes not just a person who inherits that and torments us, but you know, infiltrates the land, the environment, the whole thing that we do. And And there's there's a number of places in which just to cap that thought where he will, he will have a very fluid between scene to scene where he'll be tracking one scene and then the camera will keep panning and go up into the window and then just start the other scene. And so the, the, the concrete divisions, whether they're walls or scenes between one story and another story begin to dissolve and begin to crumble. And we see a little bit more overlap between how one scene bleeds or one story bleeds into it. The other, it's not overbearing in a Spielberg sort of way, but it's a nice example of form merging with content to be doing something formally. That's uh, helping you experience the world in a way that the story or the dialogue is telling you the way that it is. Yeah, I, I was very struck with the opening because it was, you know, we we, we actually start with the dead boy, mm-hmm. um, Santi, and him sinking into this fluid. And you're right, I mean, it's a, it's a seamless transition into, and I wrote down, you know, amniotic fluid, and it, it looked very natal neonatal sort of stuff, and then we see the creature. Um, and so, you know, we get this, okay, there's the death, there's the liquid, there's the flowing, then into the desert. I mean, we have an outline of the whole film right there. Um, and as we, you know, as we uncover the story of what happened to Santi, you know, as we come, it comes back to it in the end of, oh, it's the death, it's the boy, we're in the fluid. We see the other monster, which turns out to be one Sito. And then the boys go out into the desert. You know, there's a real continuity that we, you know, we see there. And yet it, you're right. It's, it's not a heavy handed sort of, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you and I'm going to tell you what I told right. you. I mean, we <laughs> see that. I mean, we see that device in a lot of TV shows these days. The West yeah. Wing is one that jumps to mind where, You'll see a scene and then it'll flash back to, you know, 72 hours earlier or, yeah. you know, one week earlier and it'll bring us around to that. But this isn't that. No. It is more of a montage that's introducing, I think, like a, a musical that's introducing all of the themes right. in the particular scenes. And, and certainly one of the themes is, uh, the circularity and enmeshment. Um, you know, which is part of the, the curse, part of the dialogue that the person, the voiceover says, is what is a ghost? And one of the answers is, a, or what is a curse? A tragedy condemned to repeat itself. And so this idea of repetition or endless repetition or endless cycles 
is introduced from the beginning and, and we see it, but we also it, see it visually. We see it visually, and the other thing that keeps it being from like the TV trope is that it's different. I mean, it's, it's you know, it is the same cycle, and yet if you look at the beginning and the ending, it's slightly different, but that's part of the tragedy can never repeat itself. It's, it's different people playing the different roles. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about the ending. It might be a good place to repeat our, our spoiler warning. In the Criterion DVD, there's there's a nice video interview essay with the critic Sebastian Feber about the uh, Spanish Civil War as, as a particular setting. Uh, and he brings up a kind of wonderful ambiguity about the ending. There is a lot of violence done at the orphanage. Jacinto, the bad character, is trying to get the gold. Uh, he ends up doing violence that kills both Carmen and Dr. Casares. And he's got the boys in prison until he can find the gold, at which point he's going to kill them. And the boys uh, band together in yes. what seems to me to be an intersection between a political allegory or a political statement and a religious statement. They're scared because he has guns and he's bigger and all they have is sticks, but they sharpen sticks and develop a plan uh, and are eventually able to defeat and kill him, thus appeasing the ghost, giving the ghost vengeance and saving their own lives. Right. Uh, and the final shot is one of them leaving the orphanage and going out into the world. It was very reminiscent to me, almost of the final shots of John Ford's The Searcher, where you've got this big landscape in front of us and uh, domesticity and enclosure and safety behind. And on the one hand, it's a very triumphal ending. The small people have gathered together yeah. and defeated the monstrous evil. Yeah, there's power. a stark movement from dark to light. Yeah. It, visually, they're they're moving out of shadow into the light. The landscape is beautiful, but Faber also says, "Okay, what do we make of the fact that this is set in the Spanish Civil War, and we know that what these boys are entering into is forty years of desert wandering? It's not, you know, they're not leaving the horror behind them, or they're leaving one horror behind them. But what awaits them is." a long, hard road of more fascism or more evil. You had mentioned that you thought the ending was maybe more complex than Fever gives out. He he sort of well, suggests that there's an irony there and that it's, it's positive, but the context of the film makes us read it more negative. But you almost read it as a little bit more mixed, even within the context. Yeah, even with that. I mean, the one, the one part of that ending that I thought was very interesting was that, yes, we've got our ragtag bunch. I mean, and they are not, they're not moving out into the light uninjured. I mean, all of them have, have cuts and bruises and whatnot. We have one kid who has badly twisted his ankle and can't walk to be a sprain or even a break. Who knows? Certainly these are all boys from the ages of eight to 12 and they've all participated in a killing. Um, you know, in a very real sense, their innocence is gone. Uh, but then, you know, there's that as well as what Faber talks about in terms of the, the world they're going out into. Mm -hmm. You know, they themselves are now a mix. But in the shadow, and, and you know, it, it is a very stark separation between the shadow and the light. But we see the doctor. 
the ghost. There's a there's a new ghost has been created, and and the doctor is staying in the orphanage. And I just, I think that's a very interesting sort of ending in the sense of it, the ghost is this tragedy condemned to repeat itself. If the ghost is there's some secret that you know it, the whole trope of the film is that the the reason that Sati is hanging around is that Nobody knows how he was killed. There's a secret there holding him. And, you know, he's gotten his vengeance. His truth has come out. That ghost is gone. So what, what's keeping the doctor? Well, so I, I guess then the question is, is the, is the, that's the thing that holds the ghost. Is it the secret of nobody knowing? Because I would say some people do know or suspect. Right. Or is it, in fact, the vengeance? The doctor, before he dies, says, I really want to kill Jacinto. Yeah. But, you know, the boys kill Jacinto, you know, so so what's holding the doctor? Right. I mean, but I do, I, I, I think you're on to a much larger point that's very telling in the cyclical nature that's saying something about this curse of violence, that on the one hand, there's something triumphal in most of these ghost stories of the ghost has been appeased. Uh, we have a kind of violent, we have a kind of triumphal violence, uh, which is to say we're good. We can use violence for good to set an injustice at rest. Um, but now we've created a new ghost, but now we've created a new, a new ghost. Now that that curse has infected us. And I think, um, if I can borrow Walter Wink's phrase about the myth of redemptive violence, you know, we're over and over again told that in, you know, movies or something like that, that violence can be used in a redemptive way to right a wrong, to right an injustice, to allow the underdogs to band together and save themselves from the tyrant or the monster. And yet, in another sense, I mean, the the creation of of the doctor as a ghost you know one ghost has replaced the other ghost suggests to me that violence begets more violence and you know one injustice may be appeased in some way but that then that becomes a never ending cycle where the leisure is never clean there's always someone who has something that is that is keeping him from being at peace or being being at rest. And that's why I think that last scene, you know, we, we, on the left hand of the screen, you have the ghost standing, and then you know, and our group is marching off into the center, but on the right hand side we, is where we have our limping mm -hmm. boy. And, and to me that was just so poignant. Mm -hmm. um, because yes, these boys are going out into the world, but they are all injured. Um, they are and the boy with the leg, depending on what kind of medical attention he gets, you know, he could be permanently limping, you know, permanently marked. And in a sense, they all are permanently marked. I mean, as I said, they're eight, 12 year old boys. They've killed somebody. Mm -hmm. What is that going to do to their spirits as they move forward in life? Well, and to underscore that, it, it's not a popular thing, but it's it's worth reiterating that there's a scene earlier on 
where Jacinto talks about part of his his hatred and his villainy is that he spent 15 years in this orphanage. Right. That he's inherited this landscape, that he was an orphan, he was brought up with, uh, without a father, that he was brought up in a life of hard work, that he was oppressed by forces he didn't understand, even in his biggest act of villainy, which involves unnecessarily killing uh, a woman so that the other soldiers will accept him. That there, there is a feeling that he is acting out of his own will, but is Michael Corleone, Corleone or Tony Soprano, in a sense, enmeshed in or in farther down the right. long system. But he hasn't always been that way. You know, he hasn't always been that way. He is, um, and I say it's unpopular in these days. I mean, I think Hollywood tries to sometimes say, understand the terrorist or understand right. the monster. Most American films kind of want the monster to just be a sociopath, to just have the explanation of you were born that way. There was something wrong in your moral circuitry, you, you know a human sociopath, or some kind of monster, you know, a Terminator, right. a Velociraptor, where we don't have to be disturbed by the questions of, was it always this way, and do I have to feel bad about killing it? Because that was just its nature, and I'm not killing another human And one of the things that this film being. does so well is, I mean, yeah, with Moncito, not only do we get that story that he's been an orphan, but we also see him... I mean, the woman that he kills unnecessarily was his fiance. And early in the film, we see them acting together very nicely. I mean, there seemed to be a, a real love relationship between the two of them. And that's unsettling. But the other thing that the film does nicely is that our, our good characters, the good guys, are not perfect either. The boys themselves, um, there's a lot of bullying that goes on. You know, part of Carlos making his way into the group is standing up to a bully. That they and, and they all kind of pick on each other. I mean, it's not a perfect. You know, they're not these little cherubs running around the orphanage. The doctor and um, the woman's name who's escaping me right now, um, Carmen. Carmen. They are not perfect. Um, you know, she's having an affair with Juancito. Um, you know, and so there's all these different. You know, nobody just just Jacinto. They're not they're not all good or all bad. It's a it's a real mixture. Right. They're, they're real human beings. And I and I guess I, I, I came I'm circling back to my initial question about why did I like or see right. this film more than most horror films. And I find in the ending and in that treatment a little bit more moral complexity than I'm used to seeing in a lot of horror films where evil is just uncomplicatedly evil and needs to be destroyed. I mean, I don't know, know if this is pushing it too far, but you know, we get a flashback to the murder of Santi, and there are accidental qualities yes. to that. Later on, when he kills his fiance, I think we see the demoralizing effects of unrepentant sins or, you know, the curse of violence or something like that. But he doesn't, you know, Santi oversees him trying to break into the safe where he thinks the gold is, and he's bullying Santi, and uh, in the course of bullying, he hits his head. Um, now, granted, he hits his head and doesn't die, 
And then that becomes a compounded thing of like, rather than it confess, I'm going to finish it off. But I'm back to that comment. I keep going back to when my wife saw the Godfather for the first time and said, no one wakes up and says, I think I'll go to hell today. Right. It's, it's usually a sequence of decisions, each one which makes the, the next one a little bit easier until the final outcome, the person is unrecognizable even to themselves. Think, um, yeah. And there's a kind of tragedy in Jacinto that makes you worry for the kids, not because their killing is the equivalent of his, it's not, but because you know that what they're going to have to do to survive in that world is, it seems impossible for that innocence or that goodness to survive. And that's that curse of the landscape yeah. that they've inherited. And that Well, it brings us, you know, we keep coming back to that idea that it, a ghost is a tragedy condemned to repeat itself. And, you know, when I teach my intro to lit course and I get, we get into the drama section, I always have to get on my little soapbox and give a little, sermon about tragedy and that especially in the Greek tradition tragedy is something that requires it, it is the effect of a choice you know a piano falling out of the sky and smashing you is not a tragedy you know that's an accident and in our current culture tragedy and accident have kind of been conflated a lot but historically, dramatically, tragedy is something that is the result of choices. So, yeah, in The Godfather, we see Michael make all of these choices, and they, he gets further, further enmeshed. And, that, and that's the tragedy of his life. And the thing that where that dovetails perfectly with this movie is that in isolation, any one of those choices makes perfect rational sense and can even be justified. I mean... The yeah. boys don't say, oh, we want to kill Jacinto because we hate him. They make a rational argument that says, do, do you really think he's going to let us go And when he finds the goal? No. And the answer, the answer is no. So it really is him or me. And that, that choice both makes sense and is defensible. But it plays over a backdrop of, you know, in the middle of the film, they have a scene where they're carrying or trying to put up a crucifix. And, you know, one of them looks at the figure of Jesus and says, this is this guy's really heavy for a dead guy. And I mean, I think that's literal. The cross right. is heavy or the crucifix is heavy. But it's also that, you know, the commands, the expectations, the demands that his teaching uh, puts on us are unrealistic or unattainable. And so how can we, you know, overall it, within the tragedies, you, you know, how could we even live a great sounding life? How can we even live a life of forgiving our enemies or loving our enemies or turning the other cheek in the world, in the landscape that we've inherited? And I mean, we haven't even touched on, right? There's this unexploded bomb in the <laughs> courtyard. This is part of the horror is that we've inherited a landscape where, we could be incinerated at any moment through, and, you know, through, things, through no, no fault of our own, no fault of our own or consequences totally outside of our control. How do we live in a world like that? You know, like that much less. How do we live Christian in a world like that? You know, 
Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I interrupted you because I, I think you're totally right that tragedy involves choice. Uh, but the thing that makes tragedy so poignant is not when it's a didactic, moralistic, like the fairy tale, right. don't make this bad choice or these bad things will happen to you. It's when you emphasize with them because you're like, well, what other choice would I have made? What other choice could they make? So on the one hand, I'm being penalized or judged for my choices. But on the other hand, I, it doesn't feel like a choice. It feels yeah. like this is what I had to do. Which is, you know, I think in many contemporary films, that's the constant refrain of people that are making bad choices. Is, I had no choice. I had no choice. Yes, you did. You might not have had a, a pleasant choice, but we always have choices. And, and that's the tragedy. Yeah, I mean, and, if I can invoke another famous movie, right? Sophie's Choice yeah. you know, <laughs> was... Uh, part of it was like she could tell herself, I had no choice, I was compelled, but part of what haunts her is the feeling like I made a choice. The fact that there were no good options right. to choose from doesn't alleviate me of the burden of feeling as though I am somehow responsible because I have chosen to, to do this. And I do think that we, I, I mean, we've got four young boys in there who have chosen to take a life. And right. it's a totally defensible choice. It's a somber thing. It hasn't come without cost to them. And I think that's represented externally and visually by the physical mm -hmm. that you keep mentioning. Yeah. Uh, but that physical is an external symbol of the psychologically. These kids are now wounded spiritually and emotionally in the same way that they're wounded physically. Yeah. Apart from all of what we've been talking about, the film is beautiful. Colors and the, the cinematography are great. Uh, it, it's really just a, a well done film all the way around. Yeah, it definitely made me want to go back and watch Pan's Labyrinth again, or even mimic or some yeah. things because Criterion always does that. gives you gives you a reminder of uh, just the, the visual nature of the medium. So. And certainly, I mean, Del Toro himself has said in numerous places, and he does he has a little introduction. Um, into this Criterion disc that Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth are really meant to be sister movies kind of paired up. So certainly watching them together, you know, should be, we haven't done it yet, but it should be a very fruitful exercise. Well, thank you, Todd. Thank you everyone for listening. If you want to drop us a note about this podcast or with ideas for other podcasts, and you don't want to use the voicemail at 336-793-2509 or the voicemail widget, you can always use the comment widget at our website, or you can send us an email at the thin place at filmgeekradio.com. You can visit me, Ken, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Morefield or the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!